The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at globalxetfs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the BBC History magazine weekly podcast. I'm Rob Attar, Deputy Editor of the magazine, and this is the first of our December 2011 podcasts. Don't forget, BBC History magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information, or you can follow us at twitter.com forward slash historyextra or facebook.com forward slash historyextra. Coming up this week, we have... It's a standard explanatory paradigm for much of the media that things are terrible now and they must have been better earlier. That was Professor Sir David Canadine on the history of history teaching. He managed to persuade uh, the young lady who looked after his laundry and his bedding to put on his nightcap and lie in his bed. And that was Nigel Jones on ingenious methods of escaping from the Tower of London. First up this week is Professor Sir David Canadine, one of our leading historians working today. Recently, he has led a survey exploring the teaching of history in England during the 20th century. This survey and his recommendations have been widely reported in the press, and our editor David Musgrove caught up with him at a conference in London that was convened to consider the research and to launch the resultant book, The Right Kind of History, published by Palgrave Macmillan. You've conducted a survey of the development of history teaching in England over the past century or so. Um, and one of your, your, your key 
uh, responses to that has been that there's never been a golden age of history teaching. You mentioned that in the conference this morning. Uh, why do you say that? What, what leads you to think that there's never been a golden age? When we started this project, which, as you rightly say, is to look at the, the history of the teaching of history in the classrooms of English state schools across the 20th century, one of the reasons it seemed a good idea to try to do this was to enable us to put in perspective the current debate, which I suppose has been going on for somewhere between five and ten years now, about the state of history in schools today. Because it seemed to me and to various colleagues here at the Institute of Historical Research that without some historical perspective, we wouldn't fully understand what the real problems of today are. Um, and one of the ways in which I think that is true is that much of the discussion about history teaching in schools today thinks that there has been a catastrophic decline from some sort of golden age of history in an earlier time, an earlier time, interestingly, never actually specified, um, and that on that basis, draconian measures are needed to try to retrieve what appears to be a catastrophic situation. Um, well, one of the things, of course, that we were able to check out uh, since we looked at the history of the teaching of history in English state school classrooms from the 1900s on, uh, in terms of the nature of the teaching, in terms of the number of people studying history, in terms of the exams, in terms of the textbooks, one of the things we were able to check out was whether there was in fact a golden age when everybody knew the reigns of all the kings and queens or whatever it might be. Um, and it turns out that there has never been, as far as we could tell, such a golden age. There has always been criticism of the teaching of history in schools, as long as history has been taught in schools. And much, I think, of that criticism has been valid. But it's also worth saying, in fairness, that there has also been praise for the teaching of history in schools all the way through that period. Though none of that, I think, is to say that there was ever a golden age. I think we may indeed have a set of problems about teaching history in schools at the moment. But I don't think that what that problem is, or what those problems are, is to be understood in terms of a catastrophic declension from a once great golden age. And yet that, that view is always trotted out isn't it, by people saying it was better in my day. Um, and as you say, the, the, the time period isn't, isn't normally established. So why is that? Why do, why do people always think it was better in the past? And is that just people looking through rose-tinted spectacles to, to, to their Well, I think it, it, it's a standard explanatory paradigm for much of the media that things are terrible now and they must have been better earlier. Um, and that, in a sense, absolves you from having to dig deeper into the subject to find out what the truth of things might be. Um, but it's certainly true that from the 1900s on, people have been complaining that history is less well taught than it was before. Well, that can't be true for the whole hundred years, since if it were, then presumably no history would be being taught at all at the moment. But it's always a strong temptation, I think, to say that things were better in the past. Um, and part, of course, of the point of studying history, not just the history of the teaching of history, but the history of many other things too, is to suggest that that's very often a lazy way of thinking about things, and it's very often wrong. And it is a curious irony that here we have this hugely energised and engaged public debate about the teaching of history in schools. And I'm hugely pleased about the fact that there is such a debate, that people care that much. But ironically, the debate about the teaching of history in schools is almost wholly devoid of a historical perspective. Yet you would assume that the reason people think it's worthwhile getting engaged in that debate is that they think history is important. Mm. Now, whenever we write about history teaching in the magazine um, we can be sure of getting a big response if you suggested and I'm sure we'll get a big response from our conversation here and, and you've had a big response already in, in the media. So why is it that people get so agitated and excited about history teaching? What is it about history teaching that makes people think they have to comment on it? I think there is something special about history which does kind of engage with people or get under their skin or worry them or excite them or make them cross. 
And I think it's more true of history than other subjects. So, of course, I must be careful here because I'm no expert on other subjects, uh, let alone not being expert on an awful lot of history too. But there is, I think, a sense about many subjects, if one thinks of mathematics or if one thinks, as it were, of astronomy or economics uh, or Spanish, um, that whatever part of the world you're taught them in, it's the same subject and it has the same agreed kind of body of knowledge and data and material. Um, whereas if you teach history uh, in Australia as distinct from history in the United States or history in Brazil or history in Russia, it's a different subject because a large part of what's taught is the history of the nation you happen to be in. So that it, there is something about the subject matter of history which is more particular to the country you're in than about the subject matter of many other subjects that are taught. And I think that then gets to the issue of what is our notion of who we are, what is our notion of this country we inhabit, what does it mean to be Russian, what does it mean to be an American, what does it mean to be British or Welsh or Scottish or Irish. And part of the answer to those questions is about what we make of the past and where we think we've come from, where we are, and by implication, where we're headed. And all of those questions about national identity and personal identity in the context of a nation are fundamentally, in many ways, historical questions, in a way that they're not questions about algebra, as it were, or about geometry, or about geography, or about mathematics. And so there is, I think, something about the subject of history which gets to us in a way that other subjects don't. And that that's, that goes to the heart of the fact that history teaching is, as you said, you Book sort of entangled with patriotism and, and now with citizenship in a way. And there's, there's an interesting comment in, in one part of the book where he, uh, a chap talks about how he thinks that the, uh, that uh, in the before the First World War, um, the fact that history was taught in such a way encouraged people to enlist, which which you then go on to slightly refute. Um, but has history teaching always been entangled with those aspects of patriotism and citizenship? Um, and was there a particular moment when when it really all sect together? I think that the whole issue of the connection between history as taught in schools and a sense of patriotism and national identity is in fact a more vexed question than many of the people who get agitated about history are minded to say. There's certainly some evidence, and we found it in the course of our researches, that some people thought that they were being, as it were, indoctrinated with patriotic and imperial values from the 1900s to the present day. Um, but it's fair to say, on the basis of our own research, that there was even more evidence to the effect that, on the whole, that wasn't so. Um, it was certainly true that the official doctrine from Whitehall before the national curriculum, and to some degree since then, was always that you didn't push patriotic identity. You certainly taught the history of this country, but you taught it in relation to the history of other countries, and you tried to teach it in a broad-minded way. And the men, and they were nearly always men, in Whitehall were very clear that there was a difference between teaching the history of the nation in that way and crude political propaganda, which they were against. Um, and I think on the whole, that was, as it were, true. That was what they thought ought to happen. And on the whole, I think that is what did happen. And one of the pieces of evidence that that is what did happen, that's to say that patriotism and imperial consciousness were not actually pushed all that much, is that throughout uh, the 20th century, there's a constant chorus, or at least there are a set of solo voices complaining that insufficient attention, for instance, was given to the history of the British Empire. Jeremy Paxman has made that point quite recently. Um, but actually, in the Second World War, Winston Churchill made that point. In the interwar years, George V made that point. And before the First World War, Lord Meath, who was the man who invented Empire Day, was deeply distressed that, as he saw it, there was far too little teaching in schools about empire and about imperial consciousness. And I think 
he was certainly right that not much of it was taught. So the whole issue of the way in which history is taught in schools and a sense of patriotic identity is a very complicated issue. But I think in general it's fair to say that most of the history teaching, insofar as it's related to the history of this country, has not on the whole simply been a cheerleading narrative of national greatness. It's certainly been concerned to tell the national story, but in a more nuanced way. And that on the whole seems to me to be right and responsible and as it ought to be. So how far, given what you, what you learned from the project, how far do you think history teaching has, has reflected or mirrored social and cultural trends in England or Britain? No, it's England really, isn't it, during the course of the century? Yes, it is just England, I ought to say. That was more than enough. Mm. Um, I mean, we discovered that history teaching in Scotland and in Wales and, of course, originally in the whole of Ireland and subsequently in Northern Ireland are separate subjects which need doing, but we had more than enough to be going on with. Uh, in terms of England. Now, remind me of the question. How far it's reflected social and cultural changes? One of the things, of course, that's hugely interesting is that at the beginning of the 20th century, when this survey starts, Britain was the greatest empire in the world and the richest and most powerful nation in the world. None of that can be said of it now. So that, as it were, the history of Britain in the 20th century, the period when history has been taught, is of itself very extraordinary. And obviously, that must influence the way in which the history of this nation has been taught and changes in the way it's been taught across time. Um, and I think that there's considerable evidence in support of that view. It's also, of course, interesting to think that across the 20th century, the sort of history that the people who are teachers may have been taught in university, very, there were very few of them before the Second World War, but there were some, and of course since the Second World War there have been far more. The sort of history that they've been taught has changed over time as different aspects of history have been prioritised uh, at university. So there's quite a lot of variables there uh, in terms of helping to understand what is actually being taught and who is doing the teaching in classrooms in England across the 20th century. And in a sense, uh, pursuing that thought a bit, one of the bigger points we wanted to make in this book is that if one is to understand the many varied forces which ultimately help explain and determine the history that's taught on any given day in any given school, there are in fact an awful lot of them. And in order to get a broad picture of that, there's a huge number of variables you need to consider from, as it were, government ministers and parliamentary legislation to the nature of a school building and the catchment area of the school pupils and lots of other things in between. Okay, just a couple more questions. One of, one of your recommendations, having done the work, is that, that uh, history should be taught up to the age of 16. Um, what, in your view, what's got to give to allow for that, or is that not your problem? Well, of course, having said that the, in order to understand how history get, actually gets taught, it's a complicated issue. We were rather loath to make simplistic recommendations because I suspect that none of them are adequate to the complexity of the subject. But we were concerned to try to get a sense of what are the current problems as distinct from the falling away from a great golden age to a state of catastrophe, which is how it's often presented, which I don't think is the case. And one of the things that we concluded, having done this 100-year survey, is that actually the national curriculum isn't the problem, that that actually sketches out well um, a curriculum which is concerned with the long-term history of this country, but also is concerned to situate it in a broader context of European and global developments. And one can disagree over particular bits of it, but the general design, I think, is a good one. And I think the notion that the curriculum needs tinkering with and endlessly reforming is an excuse for not dealing with more important issues. 
And the issue that we came to feel was in the end the most important one, because it's a route into dealing with other matters, is the fact that although the National Curriculum for History was originally designed to go up to 16 and would have been a coherent, well-developed scheme, it was truncated by Ken Clark and ended at 14. And so lots of things were concentrated in a shorter span of time. That resulted in the national curriculum not being aligned with GCSE, and it helped open the possibility of doing the Nazis at 15 and again, at 14 and again at 16. So that the suggestion is that if history were made compulsory in the way that was originally intended up until 16, there's a very real possibility that many of what are, I think, substantively the problems about history teaching today could be addressed and might be solved. Now, that said, of course, then there is the issue, well, what would give your question? But I think there's a variety of ways of thinking about that. Um, one of them is that there have been this set of vocational diplomas that the Labour government introduced into syllabuses in schools, um, and the funding for that is, I gather, about to end, and those vocational diplomas and the time given over to those are likely to fall away, uh, which would free up time in the timetable for more teaching of history. That would be one option. Another option which we were hearing about in the discussion this afternoon uh, came from a teacher who said we should just abandon citizenship, that citizenship isn't a subject, uh, that actually if you want to learn citizenship you ought to study history anyway because it's the history of your own country. So that might be another way to think about it. Um, we're certainly not in the business of suggesting, as it were, history at all costs and slash and burn everything else. That would be irresponsible and it's certainly not our position. Uh, I think it is clear that it would be perfectly possible to find time on school timetables to, to cope with making history compulsory to 16. Um, and it's only in part because it would be practicable, as well as a good idea, that we are emboldened to make that recommendation. And in the light of his comments this morning, I'm hopeful that that's a recommendation that Michael Gove will take seriously. Last question. Uh, one of the quotes in, in your book from uh, one of the civil servants involved in, in history education was that it, it, most of it will be forgotten anyway, so it doesn't really matter, um, which is, a, is a, quite a, a negative view on things. But it, it, with that in mind, a lot of people will forget a lot of stuff that they learn in school. What, what would you hope would be the, the, the things that people would take from their history learning in school? What are the main things that you'd like them to leave school well, it's fair to say that I've forgotten a lot of the history I learned in school, and I'm a professional historian, so um, if I've forgotten quite a lot, I suppose it's quite likely that other people will have forgotten quite a lot too. But I think that we have to strike a balance here. I mean, I don't think actually we all forget everything. I think certain names, dates, episodes, events do stick um, and remain with us. But I think beyond that, uh, what is also um, important to remember is that History does teach perspective and proportion. It helps us get a sense of where we stand in the broader ordering of things. And I think that history teaching in schools, if it's well done and successful, results in a curiosity about the past which will stay with many people all their lives. And I think that in, in that sense, the most important way to think about history teaching in schools is that it's to make people curious about the past about themselves in time, about how we got from where we were to where we are, and to encourage them to believe that for the rest of their lives there'll be a wonderful array of history books available for them to read, marvellous historical buildings for them to go and visit, and to give them uh, the curiosity to want to keep doing that. Um, and that, I think, is a long-lasting consequence of being taught history well, which far outlives whether you can remember the details of the third partition of Poland in the 18th century. And, and can you? No. <laughs>
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Professor Sir David Canadine, Dodge Professor of History at Princeton University and author along with Dr Nicholas Sheldon and Dr Jenny Keating, of The Right Kind of History, published by Pargrave Macmillan and Now. The research project, The History of Education, has an excellent website that gives full details of the project findings, including audio interviews with teachers and students of history. Go to history.ac.uk forward slash history hyphen in hyphen education for a look at that. Now it's time for our historical trivia moment. Last week we told you about an angry artist who took unusual revenge on a disagreeable cook. This week it's the turn of Frederick William I, King of Prussia, who had a curious fascination with tall men. So much so that he collected them from all over Europe to form his Potsdam Grenadier Guards Regiment, where the soldiers had to be well over six foot tall. These Potsdam giants never saw battle and instead were used for ceremonial purposes. If any listeners would like to email in with further interesting historical facts, we'll gladly read them out here if they're true, of course, and we'll give you a name check in return. Email us at podcast at historyextra.com with any curious historical facts. Next up, I've been talking to Nigel Jones, historian and author, and a former member of the BBC History magazine editorial team. His latest book is A History of the Tower of London, and I spoke to him about the fortress's role as a prison and about some of the most ingenious escape attempts carried out there. When and why was the Tower of London built? Well, it was built as one of many or several fortresses that the Normans constructed very shortly after the uh, Battle of Hastings and their victory. Uh, Started around a decade later in about 1078. And um, the main reason was, I think, to overawe London. London already was a substantial town by those stands, about 10,000 inhabitants, and they needed to make their presence felt. They were very much still a minority and an unwelcome, mainly military force in the country. So to have this gigantic uh, white-walled tower, uh, which was what we now call the White Tower, the central keep of the Tower of London, uh, was a very real demonstration of their prowess. Um, The other reason for building it was to um, uh, guard against any possible invasions from the um, sea, from the Thames side. I mean, we've got to remember that as recently as 1066, there'd been the the last Viking incursion into northern England, and that was always still a very present danger. So I think they were the two main reasons for it. And the tower that we see now, how similar is that in appearance to the original uh, Norman one? Well, the original Norman one is, is still there. As I say, it's mm. the keep of, of, of the tower, built, incidentally, with Norman stone that was shipped across the channel from, from Caen. Um, then later kings built uh, later additions. Um, a royal palace was the first thing to go up. Uh, that's now disappeared to the south of the White Tower. And then King Henry III and his son, King Edward I, built the two concentric rings, curtain walls uh, of subsidiary towers that we now see. So by the end of Edward I's 
rain, it had roughly assumed the shape that we can see now. And when did the tower first become a prison? Ah, well, quite early on, actually, because um, the first state prisoner of which we have a record held there, held in the White Tower, was the um, chief tax raiser. He later became Bishop of Durham, of William Rufus, the son of William the Conqueror, who built it. He was a guy called Ranulf Flambard, and he was also the first recorded escapee from um, the Tower of London. He was held there um, as soon as William died in 1100. As it were, the new king, Henry I, wanted to make a, a break with the old regime, and the best way of doing this was to imprison this horrible tax extortionist uh, who'd become notorious during Rufus's reign, and he banged up Ranulf Flambard in the Tower. And Flambard then got out, possibly by bribing his jailers through shinning down a rope the White Tower skimming over the moat and getting away to France. Was the tower then used as a prison from then on? Not very regularly, but whenever there was an important state prisoner to be held, uh, he generally ended up in the tower. It was always a VIP prison. Um, Lesser mortals were held in many of London's other prisons, like the Gatehouse or the Clink on the South Bank. But the tower was always a prison for the top people, and later on, very often a prison for those... um, uh, on suspicion or convicted of treason or high treason, which would cover a, a number of sins, including uh, adultery in the case of Henry VIII's two wives, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. So it was from Flambard's um, incarceration after 1100 right down to Rudolf Hess, Hitler's deputy, being held there during the war for about a week. It was a, a state prison, often a very crowded state prison. Why was it this VIP prison? Was it just its prominence? Uh, yeah, the king, in the early days, the king liked to keep his um, um, important prisoners close under his eye. And you've got to remember the tower. At the same time as it, it was being used as um, a royal palace, I'm talking about the period of the Wars of the Roses, for example, it was also used as a prison. So you've got this very piquant situation during the Wars of the Roses that the deposed king, Henry VI, the uh, Lancastrian um, head of state, is being held in the Wakefield Tower almost next door to the royal palace where his supplanter, where his usurper, Edward IV, is holding court with his cronies and his mistresses um, in the royal palace. That's uh, an... Henry VI, as you probably know, was a, was a very pious, uh, religious character, hated the, the sins of the flesh, and Edward IV was carousing and uh, bedding his mistresses um, only a wall away, as it were, from Henry VI. So it's a very piquant situation. And it's strange that the, this sort of cheek-by-jowl uh, functions of the tower as a place of darkness and a place of light was going on all the time. And do we have any idea of what kind of conditions the prisoners were kept in the tower? That, again, depended on their status. The, uh, those who were well-off were, were, were actually kept in surprisingly um, easy, comfortable conditions. For example, the Duke of Norfolk spent possibly about as much as a million pounds during his long incarceration uh, from the end of the reign of Henry VIII down to the restoration of Catholicism under Mary I. Uh, he was allowed coals for his fire in his room, and he and many other prisoners were allowed what they called the liberty of the tower, which meant they could wander around almost at will around the fortress. Whereas, and kings and queens who were imprisoned there, the kings of um, France was uh, imprisoned there, the king of Scotland was imprisoned there, they were, of course, 
treated as honoured guests and were allowed to have a suite of servants with them as well, and money was provided for their upkeep of the servants. On the other hand, if you were a Catholic priest suspected of trying to overthrow Elizabeth I, or if you were Sir Thomas More and Henry VIII was trying to grind you down and get you to sign the oath of supremacy, you were treated pretty badly indeed. You were cold, you were miserable, you had a, a wooden pallet to lie on, uh, you had pretty poor rations. So it, it very much depended on what the reason you were in prison for and who you were. Now, the feature that you've written for us in the magazine is specifically about escaping the Tower. Yeah. How easy was it to get out of the Tower of London? Well, it doesn't look very easy at all, does it? Because when we look at the Tower, even today, it looks like an absolutely formidable fortress. You've got one outer wall and an even higher inner wall. You've got a moat, which in those days would have been filled with stinking, uh, disgusting, um, awful-filled wastes as well as water. Uh, So it didn't look good at all. But at certain times, it seemed to be very, very porous. Um, For example, uh, there was a long-term prisoner called Edmund Neville um, during the reign of Elizabeth I in there for suspected Catholicism. Uh, He had the the run of the tower, he had the liberties of the tower, and he was able to pick up enough stuff running around um, during his uh, 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 liberties to manufacture, um, first of all, file to file through his his bars and windows. He made three escapes from the tower, and the first two were made through filing through the bars on his windows. Um, and secondly, he faked up a blacksmith's tool, so he pretended to be a blacksmith and get out that way. Um, he didn't succeed ultimately, but he was uh, was released, so he was the tower's, if you like, most successful escaper. So you see, he's got out twice and nearly got out three times. You know, it's the usual thing when you're reading accounts of Colditz. Jailers are susceptible to bribery, they get careless with long-term prisoners, uh, political ups and downs, they maybe turn a blind eye to an escape of a prisoner. So it was much easier to get out than it looks. And over the course of time, no fewer than 32 prisoners actually managed to escape. So do you have any idea of what kind of proportion of prisoners could get out? I I would say when you consider that in Elizabeth, in the Elizabethan times, um, sometimes there were literally scores or dozens of prisoners there. It was still a a pretty small proportion. But even so, I think it's remarkable that, you know, like Colditz, which was supposed to be um, a a castle where no one could get out of this, it's still remarkable that 32 people managed to get out of the tower. Were there any common techniques that these people used? Yeah, I mean, it's like reading um, The Great Escape or an account of um, uh, an escape from a German POW camp in the Second World War. They used they used disguises, uh, they suborned or bribed warders, they used ropes that had been smuggled into the prison, uh, they cut through bars in their cells, they used trickery. Um, in the case of Eben Neville, who I've already mentioned, for example, he built a dummy of himself and always sat motionless in the same seat in his his cell. So his guard, when he came in, was used to this rather motionless, depressed-looking figure uh, sitting in the corner. And then one day he just simply stuck the dummy where he used in his own clothes, mm. where he used to sit, and then scooted out through the door as the as the jailer brought him his supper. Th- those sort of things. I mean, in escaping from a confined space, uh, it seems that nothing really has changed over the centuries. Did a lot of them have help from outside? Yeah, very often. Um, the case, uh, one famous case, a Catholic priest called John Gerard, who survived, who got a, got clean away, and wrote an account of his escape. He um, 
managed to, pers- first of all, he got a jailer on his side by, the man was very sympathetic to him because mm. uh, Gerard had been tortured and couldn't use his hands. So he relied on his jailer to shave him, to wash him, to feed him, to do everything for him. Uh, when he recovered the use of his hands and his arms, he already had the jailer's sympathy and he built on that to make the jailer do him progressively larger and larger favours till in the end the jailer was smuggling in letters from his Catholic confreres outside the tower and in the end in fact the jailer converted to Catholicism and became an absolute ally helping him in his escape. So it was a gradual process Um, and there are many other cases when uh, it seems that there was inside help given uh, for jailers who thought maybe the political wind was changing and the faction that this prisoner belonged to would have the upper hand in future or if they were personally sympathetic to them if they were a protestant sympathetic to a protestant prisoner a catholic sympathetic to a catholic prisoner for example examples exist of both those um, those things you mentioned people who escaped say three times from the tower does that mean generally escapees were recaptured uh, well, in the case of the man I'm talking about, he's the only person who's made multiple escape. Mm. escape. Some got a clean away. Uh, the most famous example, which I mention in the magazine, is Lord Nithsdale, a Jacobite peer, who literally escaped actually on the eve of his execution, thanks to his very, very ingenious and courageous wife, who dressed him up um, in her uh, clothes and with the, uh, with the help of... Um, lady helpers who were dressed exactly the same and going constantly going in and out visiting him on his last night on earth managed to get him out by confusing the guards so the, the so the, the, the he got clean away and he died in rome and there were several cases like that neville although he escaped he was constantly re, re, recaptured but in the end after about 20 years i think inside he was released and um what was the reaction by the authorities to these escapes? Were they, did they come down quite hard on the jailers? Again, that depended. Um, in the case of, that I mentioned of Ranulf Flambard, the first prisoner, he was received back into royal favour later, so it may well have been a nod and a wink by the king that he sort of let him escape. In the case of a very tragic uh, escapee, or would-be escapee, a woman called Arbella Stewart, who was very close to the throne, and indeed was a, was a contender for the throne after Elizabeth had died and James uh, I became king, he was very suspicious of her, particularly as she'd made a marriage unauthorised by him to a man called Edward Seymour, um, a descendant of um, Jane Seymour, the Queen of Henry VIII. So he had royal blood, she had royal blood, and, and the king was extremely uh, suspicious of them. So um, he got out, she didn't, and she was banged up uh, and uh, more or less pined away and died very, very, very soon after, probably of tuberculosis, but also exacerbated by the fact that she wasn't able to get out and join her, her husband. He was absolutely furious, uh, James. He jailed and even tortured practically everyone connected with the escape, even a completely innocent boatman who ferried them down the river without knowing who they were. And were measures then taken off someone's escape to try and prevent that method of escape being used again? Not really, because I mean they were constantly used again and again over the years. Sometimes they would they would institute very very um, severe measures, like in Edmund Neville's case, he was manacled to his bed. But after a while, you know, attention relaxes. Um, and a more liberal regime comes in and he could do it all over again. That, the trouble with, with, with sort of tightened security is inevitably, human beings being what they are, after a while slackens off again and then you have to tighten it again. And usually you only tighten it again after there's been another successful escape. What would you say was the most ingenious escape attempt? 
Well, I would say the uh, the other one that I mentioned in the magazine, um, which was General John Lambert, who was an uh, an old Cromwellian. No, he was still a young man, but he was uh, um, loyal to the good old cause of, of Cromwellian republicanism, and he managed to persuade um, his sort of he he had a maid. Um, he was a very handsome, charming man, married with loads of kids. But he 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 managed to persuade uh, the young lady who looked after his laundry and his bedding to put on his nightcap and lie in his bed uh, with her covers pulled up so that no one could see who she was. Where, and he got away with a silk scar, uh, with a silk rope that had been bought at great expense and smuggled in by another lady sympathiser. So he, he sawed through the bars, got away, shinned down. He was wearing uh, bandages around his ha- hands to make sure there was no friction. And the um, servant, the maidservant, was in his bed. And when the jailer came in in the morning and pulled back the covers and said, my lord, time to get up, there she was. And he said, good God, Joan, what are you doing here? And, of course, uh, Lambert was far away by then and, and trying to raise... Um, 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 parliamentary troops to, to prevent the restoration of Charles II, sadly without success, and uh, eventually he was brought back to the Tower, and he spent the next quarter of the century not in the Tower only, he went. He was imprisoned in the Channel Islands and finally in Plymouth, and sadly went, went insane at the end of his, uh, his long imprisonment, but they never let him out again. Do you know what happened to the maid? Who no, I, I think that she wasn't severely punished. Uh, it was a time of, of, of chaos just before the restoration, and I think it was understood that uh, you know, she had succumbed to the blandishments of this um, highly persuasive charmer. But, uh, so there's no record of her being severely punished or executed or anything like that, which is nice. And having read about all these escape attempts yourself, do you think that if you were locked in the town, you'd be able to get out? <laughs> Uh, that's well. The, the, the one method of getting out that was never used because the tower was so near the river and, and was waterlogged was some um, tunnelling, which was one of the, mm. the, the the common methods in the Second World War. I think I would have been best at. I would definitely have tried to get out if my sentence had been as it was for many prisoners in the tower, sort of indeterminate. They were kept mm. in literally at the king or queen's pleasure, and I think I would have tried the, the Nisdale method, tried to disguise myself and get out by trickery rather than. Um, I'm not very good with heights, so I don't think I'd have got down a rope, but I, I would have tried to trick my way out. That was Nigel Jones. You can read more about tower escape attempts in the Christmas issue of the magazine, published imminently. His book, Tower, An Epic History of the Tower of London, has recently been published by Hutchinson. It has also been selected as one of our history books of the year for 2011, and you can find out what else made the shortlist in our Christmas issue. For more great history this week, do check out The Manor Reborn on Thursday at 9pm on BBC One, where the renovation of Averbury Manor continues. And you can read a column by one of the presenters, Anna Whitelock, on our website at historyextra.com forward slash reborn. Well, that's all for this week's episode. Please join us next time when we'll be talking about the First World War and the scientist Robert Boyle. BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by the ebullient Dave Gibson. Thanks for listening.